thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. This week, we're getting animated from the researcher putting voice actors into brain scanners to the physicists working out how a giraffe would balance on a tightrope. We are exploring the science that brings animations to the big screen. Plus, why we're more prone to viral infections when we're jet-lagged, how a common technique to prevent premature births could actually cause them, and were Neanderthals killed off by their own campfires? I'm Georgia Mills. And I'm Chris Smith, and you're listening to The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk Many people complain that going on holiday causes them to catch a cold. I'm one of them. And now we might know why. Now, vacation colds and holiday influenza are perennial moans. They're made by travellers who say they are steadfastly healthy when they're working away in the office, but as soon as they fly abroad and hit the beach, they immediately succumb to the local circulating lurgy. Now, the reason, Cambridge scientists are saying, is it could be that disruption to your body clock makes infecting viruses grow up to 10 times better in your cells. One of the discoverers is Ak Reddy. So, Ak, what were you doing and how did you stumble on this? Well, we kind of figured that viruses are unusual in terms of microorganisms that infect the body because they actually need our cells in order to replicate. And therefore, because every single cell in the body has um, this biological or circadian 24-hour clock within it, we thought that there might be particular times of day when um, all of the things that the virus requires would be um, you know, increased and other times when they'd be decreased. So if the virus comes along at one time of day, it could capitalise on the cell that is making all the stuff that it wants. And another time of day, it wouldn't be able to replicate as well because all of the stuff that it needs isn't there simply. Because the role of that clock is basically to prepare or optimise the metabolic activity in your cells to meet the demands of the day ahead so that the, the cells are turning on their energy supply in the morning when you need to get up and face the challenges of the day and they're turning down the thermostat at night when you need to go to sleep because you don't want to have the, the, the coal-fired power station running away at furious pace when you don't need that energy. Absolutely. It's a mechanism to essentially assure that your cells run efficiently so you're not wasting energy when you don't require it to be used. But obviously if the cells are not very active, they're not as good a home for a virus Absolutely. as when they're running full pelt. Is that the case then? So when you when you put viruses into cells, do you see that's what's happening? Exactly. That's exactly what we saw in cells and in live animals as well. And this was done in mouse models, but also in free cells, which are very similar between mouse and human. Um, Just cells in a dish have a clock? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, cells in a dish have a clock. And we can synchronise those clocks by doing various things in the lab. And what we did in, was to synchronise these cells or infect mice at different times of day and then have a look at how quickly that virus then spreads over a few days. And we found that if you infect in the morning, then you're much more likely to see um, a higher rate of infection than if you do it before dusk. This is a mouse morning because mice are nocturnal, aren't they? So they're actually going to bed 
when we're getting up. So for them, it's it's nighttime, but it's really morning, if you see what I mean. Yeah, exactly. But the complicated thing in terms of how you look at clocks is actually the genes that go up and down in us and mice are actually identical in terms of their structure. And also the phasing is the same, although we interpret those clock gene signals in the opposite way. So we live in the daytime, they live at nighttime. And in the brain, in fact, bizarrely the genes are going up and down exactly the same in both of the species but the way that's interpreted by the body is actually opposite so we we don't know what exactly happens in humans so we have this body clock it's a genetic clock where you've got a gene that ticks on and it turns on another gene which turns on another gene that feeds back and turns off the first gene and this ticks around taking about 24 hours it's Mm -hmm. changing the activity of the cells as it does so now i started this interview by saying that this does help us to explain the holiday lurgy syndrome when you catch stuff when you go away now part of that must be sitting on an airplane for hours probably doesn't help but Mm. if you get jet lagged that is going to screw around with your body clock so that presumably will make your cells more susceptible to growing viruses more. Absolutely, yes. So we, we did an experiment where we messed up the clock using a genetic trick and we looked at both cells and animals and when we infected them, they were something like three or four times more affected by the virus than uh, the normal cells essentially. So that's very similar to what happens in people with jet lag or people who fly across the world, as you say. Does this mean we could use this therapeutically if we understand the importance of the body clock to a range of diseases, including virus infections. Could this change the way in which we treat these diseases? We believe so. So when we did this experiment, we used two different types of viruses. So the clock seems to be important for both of these viruses that replicate by completely different means. So the idea is that instead of having an antiviral that will effectively boost your natural immune system at one time of day or the other, Um, Instead of having one for each individual virus, you might be able to just boost your own immunity to multiple different viruses if you could switch that on or off. And that's exactly what we're trying to target at the moment. Act Reddy, who's a researcher at Cambridge University, and that work came out this week in PNAS. Now, from viruses to a very different type of medical problem. Every year, around 2 million pregnant women worldwide undergo a simple procedure known as cervical cerclage, which is putting a stitch in the cervix or neck of the womb, which helps to prevent premature birth or miscarriage. While broadly it's very safe and helps to save babies' lives, Philip Bennett and his team at Imperial College London have identified an important issue with the type of thread used for this important bit of medical sewing. Kat Arney went to see him. About 80% of doctors in the United Kingdom use a braided tape-like stitch material. It's flat, it's quite fat, it looks a little bit like a shoelace. And that is thought to be good because it's strong, it's easy to tie knots in, and it's not likely to damage the cervix. About 20% of doctors use a nylon thread, which looks more like um, a fishing line, if you like. And there have been concerns that that nylon thread is not so easy to tie, and also that it might potentially damage the neck of the womb. We have a particular interest in the role that the bacteria in the vagina play in in preterm birth. And some time ago, we asked the question, does a cervical stitch change the bacteria that are in the vagina? So what are the different risks of these two different sorts of procedures for making these changes in the bacteria? So what we found is that, first of all, uh, all of the women in whom we put a cervical stitch, already started with slightly abnormal bacteria in their vagina, which 
points towards the idea that one of the risk factors for delivering early is having abnormal bacteria. What we found then is that in the women who had the tape-like, the braided tape-like stitch, the healthy bacteria tended to die off and they tended to be replaced with uh, more harmful, more pathogenic bacteria. And that was associated with increased inflammation in the, in the vagina and cervix and with evidence on ultrasound that the cervix was beginning to ripen and soften. Whereas the people whose cervical stitch was performed using the nylon stitch, we found no changes at all. It had no effect on the bacteria, it didn't cause inflammation, and it had no effect on the structure of the cervix. How did you find this out? How many women did you look at? So in that part of the study, we just looked at 25 women who'd had the stitch with the braided stitch and 25 women who'd had the stitch with the nylon stitch and then we looked in the laboratory at what happened to the bacteria and to markers of inflammation but what we then did was we went back to look historically at our hospital data when we looked back at uh, nearly 700 patients across five uh, university hospitals in London, Birmingham and Cambridge we found that those women who had had the, the nylon stitch had a lower risk of preterm birth and a lower risk of their baby dying in uterus than women whose stitch had been performed using the braided material. Presumably this procedure is carried out in many countries around the world. How would that scale up? We estimate that there are about 2 million cervical cyclage operations performed annually throughout the world. So we think that if everybody in the world changed from the tape to the nylon, then this would save 170,000 uh, babies a year from dying and it would prevent 170,000 preterm births. In terms of the absolute risk, obviously some women might be very concerned. Can we put this in perspective? Well, the great majority of cervical cyclage operations over many decades have been performed using the tape stitch. And it's clear that in the right patients putting a cervical stitch in is definitely beneficial. So what we've effectively shown here is an operation which was a, a safe operation, which improves outcome, can be made even safer if we choose the right suture material. It's also important to bear in mind that the data we have at the moment is retrospective. It's from looking back at case series and we really need to get the result of a prospective study in which the only differences between the two groups of patients are the type of stitch material that we're using. And that trial is currently being conducted by the University of Birmingham. So what I would say is that if anybody is about to have a cervical cyclage procedure, please talk to your doctor, and uh, I would encourage you to take part in that study. For people who were not in the study, I think that we could say at the present time it's probably better that the nylon stitch be used rather than the tape stitch. A stitch in time could save more than just nine then. That was Philip Bennett from Imperial College London and that study's just come out in the journal Science Translational Medicine. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Georgia Mills. Coming up, we're going behind the scenes of the animated movie industry. But before that, we're going to take a trip back in time because Greer Jackson has been exploring how over 350 million years ago our ancestors first evolved to walk on the land. Once upon a time, there was an era known as Roma's Gap. 
It spans 25 million years and, much to paleontologists' dismay, it's a complete fossil blackout. Nobody has been able to find any. And it's a bit of a blow because what happened in that period is pretty important when it comes to understanding how we evolved to live on land. Before Roma's Gap, there were only fish. And afterwards, we have an abundance of animals walking around with limbs and fingers, what scientists call tetrapods. So how did this happen? How did our ancestors get from sea to soil? It's all a bit of a mystery. But a little over 25 years ago, Professor Jenny Clack found something in the basement of Cambridge University's Sedgwick Museum that changed everything. Well, at the beginning of my career, I had the opportunity to examine material in the Sedgwick Museum. And lo and behold, it turns out that a student had picked up some tetrapod fossils. It was called a canthostega. If you count up the number of features... It's about two-thirds of a tetrapod and one-third of a fish. And that's not all. He wasn't particularly interested in them, so he'd put them back in the drawer. And, and I found out about this and went to have a look, and what the student had found was what would appear to have been a, a quarry full of these things. One of the very first things we found out about it was, as we prepared the best specimen we have, um, was that... Actually, it had eight fingers. Eight fingers? That's a lot of fingers. <laughs> yes, and so that profoundly changed how we thought about the origin of tetrapod limbs and, and uses and how they developed. On previous fossils, they'd only found five fingers and toes. And scientists thought that this meant fish had slowly come onto land, lumbered around and then developed limbs so they could eventually walk. But eight fingers along with some other evidence, suggested otherwise. We thought that the, the digits arose for use in water and that walking on land came later. And having digits in the water gives you a certain amount of advantages for crawling through reed beds and, and that kind of thing. A lot was happening during this time. Not only was there a mass extinction, but also climate changed dramatically and gave rise to swampy conditions with lots of vegetation, which meant fish needed digits rather than fins to push these leaves aside and swim on through. It was quite a revolutionary theory. And so naturally, I wanted to see the evidence in the flesh. Or, you might say, bone. Now, well, I need some help with this. Yes, and um, um, there should be a, a, a wedge. Okay. I hesitate to say this, but this is the animal we call Boris. <laughs> Why do you call it Boris? I don't know, <laughs> but it got it got that name soon after we'd collected it. So. <laughs> the overall proportions look a little bit like a small crocodile or a small alligator. Anyway, this is the forearm. This is the humerus, the upper arm bone. Radius and ulna, lower arm bones. And here is the hand. Now, my colleague was preparing it bit by bit. So he found a finger, and then he found another one, and another one, and another one. And so on, so that in the end he'd got eight. I imagine him just sort of slowly moving away bits of rock and being like, oh, one, 
two, three, four, five. Ah, oh, oh, there's five fingers. There you go. I'm yeah. done. He nearly, he nearly did exactly that. But there was a bit more matrix to remove, so I thought, oh, well, might as well make it a proper job and, and take the rest of the matrix off. And, of course, he found the other three. I mean, thank goodness you did, because, I mean, removing rock is painstaking work, isn't it? Yes, it is, yes. It's 25 years since you published that paper, so what have you been doing in between? About, let's see, 10 years ago, my colleague Tim Smithson who's in the next-door office, decided that what he wanted to do was to explore, to see whether he could find anything from Roma's Gap. And after many years, he actually found them. So does that mean Roma's Gap is a fallacy? Roma's Gap doesn't exist anymore? That's correct, because subsequently, uh, over the last four years, we've found a whole lot more. Not only tetrapods, but the fossil record of other vertebrates as well, lungfishes in particular and chondrichthians, shark-like animals. And we've increased the number of known species from one in the case of the lungfish to seven and from two in the case of chondrichthians to ten new species. One of the things we haven't found in the Devonian so far are small animals. And that's one of the things that we're finding most of in in Roma's Gap, lots of small animals. It's partly preservation, but it's also because we think that some aspects of becoming terrestrial required these animals to become smaller so that they could walk about more easily. Jenny Clack from Cambridge University. She was speaking with Greer Jackson. Now, sticking with ancient history, a mystery of human evolution over the last million years or so is why we're here, but the handful of other early human ancestors that originally evolved alongside us, like the Neanderthals, for instance, have disappeared. Now, a new study from Penn State University's Gary Perdue makes an intriguing case for fire as the cause. Smoke inhalation would have been a very serious threat for early man, but it appears that modern humans have evolved a reduced sensitivity to the chemicals in smoke so they don't trigger so much inflammatory damage to our airways. Looking at the equivalent genes in Neanderthals, though, shows that they didn't have this protective change, which perhaps has contributed to their demise. We work on a receptor, it's called the aerial hydrocarbon receptor, or AH receptor, that senses external chemicals in the environment. So if you're exposed to smoke from a diesel bus or from a fire, there's many chemical constituents in that smoke that will actually bind and activate this receptor. And the overall idea is, is that once this receptor is activated, it increases the expression of enzymes that will metabolize and help your body get rid of those chemicals. Right, so we're endowed with a system for detecting nasties in the environment and dealing with them. But obviously we didn't evolve in the context of buses spewing out diesel fumes and that kind of thing. So why would we have this naturally? Probably the most obvious response to that would be this concept that plants have a lot of different chemicals that they express in order to keep animals from eating them. So this system would evolve probably to largely deal with our uh, dietary exposures. What's the relevance then to combustion? Out in the wild, you wouldn't be exposed to smoke constituents except for if you started to utilize fire and you stay in close proximity to that fire on a day-in, day-out basis, then that would become an issue. 
And what influence might that have had on us genetically then? So then the idea would be is that if if this receptor was um, hyperactivated by that exposure, that could lead to toxicity. Uh, it's good to have response to low levels of, of dietary chemicals so you can get rid of those and deal with them. But if you all of a sudden you're exposed to high levels of these compounds in smoke, you're going to breathe them in in your lung and it's going to cause lung toxicity. It sounds a bit paradoxical then. You detoxify the smoke, but in the process you do damage. Why would that happen? The kinds of chemical reaction uh, that this enzyme catalyzes leads to intermediates that are reactive, but our body has a way to deal with them effectively at low levels. So it's not a problem except for when you produce them at too high of a rate. Oh, so if we're exposed to a lot of smoke, then this is overloading the system and therefore potentially doing harm. And your argument would be, have we therefore evolved to become less susceptible or less sensitive to these sorts of chemicals compared with other animals because of our use of fire? Yes, exactly. Right. So if I look at our human ancestors, we know that there was Homo erectus. That was around a million years ago or so until more recently. It then splits off and you get anatomically modern humans, us, and you also get Neanderthals coming off. So if one compares Neanderthals with anatomically modern humans, us, do both Neanderthals and us have this smoke handling capacity? It turns out that the uh, Neanderthal sequence for this receptor they would uh, metabolize these compounds more rapidly than humans. How do you know that? There are three Neanderthal genomic sequences. The entire genome of Neanderthals was, was sequenced. So once we, we could get the full DNA sequence for this gene, we were able to uh, synthesize it artificially. There's uh, companies that will do this for you now. And so we have the full-length sequence for the Neanderthal receptor and the human receptor that we can now compare experimentally. The way we do this is we'll introduce these, uh, these DNA sequences into a cell line that doesn't express the AIDS receptor, and then, then these cells will express it, and we can expose them to increasing amounts of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and look at the ability of, of each receptor to increase the level of these uh, metabolizing enzymes. Wow. So you're effectively recreating a fossil gene, a Neanderthal gene in the modern context and seeing how it changes the behaviour of cells in the presence of these chemicals. And you're yes. saying that the Neanderthal equivalent responds very differently than the modern human equivalent. Yes. The Neanderthal has a 150 to as much as a 5,000 fold difference in its ability to increase expression of these enzymes. Now, one obvious thing about Neanderthals is that they are no longer with us. Would you contend then that one factor that might contribute to their disappearance is that they didn't evolve to handle smoke as well as we did and that they were possibly being killed off by their own campfires? Yes, that would increase their susceptibility to diseases and infections because of lung toxicity. Or even in their gastrointestinal tract, they were eating charcoal broiled foods, which I'm sure they weren't the greatest cooks and probably were a bit blackened at times. So there you go. In order to enjoy your barbecue, you have your ancient ancestors to thank. That was Gary Perdue, and his work was published recently in the Journal of Molecular Biology and Evolution. Back to the modern day now, and our summer is abuzz with insects. But are there fewer bees than normal? There are concerns that the use of neonicotinoid pesticides on flowers like oilseed rape are causing declines in these pollinators. 
In an enormous citizen science project, scientists from Oxfordshire have been able to track several species from the time when these pesticides were first introduced. Luchka Bibic spoke with Dr Ben Woodcock about their findings. What we've done is we've built on a number of previous studies that have been looking at the potential impacts of neonicotinoids on bees. Now, a lot of these previous studies have focused on a a very small number of bee species. These are bee species that you can actually breed. So that's honeybees, the buff-tailed bumblebee and red mason bee. What we've been able to do is is use citizen science data collected by the Bees, Wasps and Ants Recording Society over a really long period of time. That's uh, 18 years and that stretches the time before when neonicotinoids were uh, not used uh, to the time when neonicotinoids were used on on the major mass flowering crop in the UK, oilseed rape. What were the findings of your long-term study then? What we find is that for those types of bee that specifically feed on oilseed rape, those that those that are likely to be exposed to this pesticide, they're three times more likely to undergo declines in their distributions than species that don't. And overall, we find that there's a, a 10% decline in the distributions of these species, and that for some species, this can be as high as 30%. We've also been able to do that at a really large spatial scale. So we've done that at the whole of England, and we're looking at individual um, 1km grid squares, and we look around at 4,000 of those in, in England. And we've also been able to extend beyond previous studies in, into looking at many, many species. So in the UK, there's about 250 species of wild bee. And what we've been able to do is look at population changes or changes in distributions of these species for 62 of these. Now, many of the remaining species are just simply too rare to do an analysis on. And what this whole approach has allowed us to do is, is relate these changes in populations or the distribution over time and see how we get a a response to oilseed rape as it's treated with neonicotinoids. Okay, and how many people or farmers are using this type of pesticides? So with the end of our study, it was about 85% of fields were treated with uh, neonicotinoids. They're, they're a crucial pesticide. And, and I think it's, it's really important to remember here that the, the, the production of many crops is dependent on the use of pesticides. And even were we in a situation where we were to ban neonicotinoids, alternatives would have to be used. You can't grow, for example, oil food rape organically in, in the UK. That's not viable. So it is a quite a complex situation. Farmers are dependent on these pesticides, and if we keep, we want to keep growing food, which which is obviously the case, then we need to come up with management solutions that, that are compatible both with native wildlife and also with the needs of farmers. Ben Woodcock, and that work was published in the journal Nature Communications. You are listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Georgia Mills. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. It's at Naked Scientist on Twitter. We've also got the customary Facebook page. Find us on there. This week, we're getting animated. The film Finding Dory has been dominating the box office, blasting past the $900 million mark this week. And it's not alone. Animated films have featured heavily so far in 2016. So we'll be following the making of some of these movies and also finding out how science can help you get from script to screen, including how physics classes come in handy at animation school, why one scientist is putting voice actors into brain scanners and how technology might change the face of animation in the future. But before that, let's begin at the beginning. Before the script, before the storyboard, before the very first meeting, a film needs to come from an idea. 
So where and why does inspiration strike and what's going on in the brain? To help us understand the inner workings of inspiration, we're joined by Dr. Anna Abraham, a neuropsychologist from Leeds Beckett University. Hi, Anna. Hi. So what's going on in the brain during this creative process? The first idea is to try and understand what was going on in the brain was to look at, you know, single regions, to try and see whether one part of the brain, the right brain, was more creative than the left brain and so on. I remember seeing online, like, are you right-brained or are you left-brained? One's maths, one's creativity. Is it as simple as that? It's not, unfortunately, for us, (laughs) because it makes things more complicated. For a long time, it was thought to be true, and it's not completely illogical why they assumed that. It's because most of the tasks they were comparing it to were sort of logical tasks, such as how do you tie a shoelace or something like that. And you compare something like a logical task to a creative task, then the right brain would be more involved because the right brain is more uh, spontaneous, generative. But in the meantime, we know that both sort of modes of operation are equally important. It's important to have this spontaneous generative aspect uh, in order to generate uh, many ideas, but it's as important to have a controlled um, reflective part or a mode as well in order to pick the best ideas, to truly pick the most original idea to be as creative as you can. So different regions are sort of better at doing different things, but all of the regions need to kind of talk to each other and work together to get this whole creative process going. Exactly. It's, it seems to be the case that in, you know, in, in most other sort of non-creative aspects of, infam- uh, of, of thinking, you would need only one or the other network of brain regions. But in terms of creative thinking, you actually need this very sort of dynamic interplay between quite different uh, networks of brain regions that are either being very spontaneous or very deliberate. And in, it needs to be working in unison together. Okay. And in terms of when someone comes up with a new idea, where, where is that coming from? How is the brain sort of generating this new, never-before-seen thing? Our ideas come from our own minds. Our minds are very powerful things, though, and we're not really quite sure exactly how ideas come about, um, but we, we're getting closer to these answers. So we take in a lot of information every day through our senses, consciously, unconsciously. A lot goes in, a lot more goes in than we are even aware of. Uh, but then the true magic begins after that, because how they are, they, all of these all of this information, once it's stored, is weakly or strongly associated with every other piece of information in the brain. And when we're trying to generate new ideas, it's all about how these different uh, pieces of information can be combined in, in novel ways. And some of us are better at getting at these original novel combinations than others. I see. So it doesn't come from nothing. You're just taking different parts of experience and just combining them in new ways. Um, that's exactly it. So you, you take in a lot of information from different sources. So let's say I go to the bakery in the morning and I pick up my croissant and later on I see a child drawing on a pavement and at, at night I might have a sort of dream of that the child was drawing a croissant. I didn't actually see the child do that but in my dreaming mind all of these things that were not previously connected in my real experience are being combined in my mind. It's almost like the puzzle pieces can be taken although you acquire them in certain separate boxes. Once it's in there. You can just combine the puzzle pieces in any way possible. The limitations are only kind of in your own mind. I see. So creativity is basically just stealing with style, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people say, oh, I'm not very creative. I can't do that. Is, is, are some people just not creative and are there ways you can get better at it? Uh, a lot of people feel that they're not creative and that's because they have certain notions about what it means to be creative. So they only see... 
um, people who who practice sort of the visual arts or music and so on as being creative. Um, in truth, we're being creative in every sphere of our lives all the time. When we when we speak, when we're cooking in the kitchen, it is, and, and when we think about new ways to do uh, pro- solve problems, uh, we're always we're very very creative species. Some of us are more easily more creative than other people, but doesn't mean that in any way we are set in our talents. I mean, whether it's like an Olympic sport or whether it's trying to improve your memory. Creativity is the same thing. You can improve with practice um, and you can improve it in very, very deliberate ways. Well, practice makes perfect. Imagine that. Thanks, I know That was Anna Abraham from Leeds Beckett University. Now, once an idea has actually formed in the brain of a filmmaker, they have to decide how it's going to look. And animated films have arguably changed in appearance more than any other genre of movie. Sean Cubitt is from Goldsmiths, University of London, where he researches the history of visual technologies. Sean, how far back in history does the whole art of animation go? Uh, Hi, Chris. I I would say it's pretty much the oldest art form there is, if you think of casting shadows on the wall of the cave by firelight or being taken through the caves and looking at the paintings by the light of a flickering torch. You're talking about an animation of, uh, of hands and of drawings. So we think that's probably the origins of people getting to grips with with the art form of moving imagery that's not real pictures. And from there, it's evolved since. Absolutely. It begins, I think, in the very ancient past. It grows through almost universal fascination with puppets. And then it begins to turn into optical toys, first at the time of the Jesuits um, in the Baroque, uh, especially in their interactions with Japanese and Chinese culture. And then with the invention of lots and lots of toys of phenakistoscopes and thaumatropes all through the 19th century. These are often physical objects which rotate inside which, either using prisms or slats, there's a way of making... Um, fixed images appear to move. Oh, this is the idea where you had that big drum with the cut, the slits cut in it, and it looks like the horse is jumping over the fence because you get a series of snapshots of a, of a picture, and it, exactly. it makes it look like it's moving. That's exactly it, and it it helps feed into the birth of cinema. Although the first cinema animations were actually recordings of. Uh, music hall artists who did lightning sketches. But very quickly they started to realise the same principle of stop motion uh, in cinema, whether it was with line drawings or with um, objects such as a box of matches in a famous example from 1903, that you could make the appearance of uh, life, which is, of course, the, the the principle of the anima of the soul coming into um, into objects and bringing it life. When did the the cartoon or the animation, as I would probably recognise it as such, in a cinema? When did that actually come in? The first really recognisable ones are around 1903, 1904, especially with uh, a French artist called Emile Cole. But by 1914, all the basic technologies were put in place for what became the major animation industries like uh, Disney's and Warner Brothers cartoons. What sorts of things in 1903 were people going to the cinema to see of these animations was it sort of tom and jerry-esque or was it something a, a bit more serious and somber 
the uh, one I just mentioned is the uh, the fabulous matches which come to life uh, and, and make a little dance. Uh, or if you think of perhaps some of your audience will have seen some of um, Melies's films where um, Melies animates his own body and parts of the scenery by using stop motion techniques. And that's a little bit later, 1906. But the... The big breakthroughs in line and line drawing animation really happened around 1914. Disney isn't quite in the forefront. He was a, a struggling late arrival into the business. But they had established the fundamentals that would then guide the cinema industry right the way through to the 1970s and all of its animation. Now, I grew up on a diet of Bugs Bunny and, and Tom and Jerry and that kind of thing. They were made the old-fashioned way, I presume. People were literally sitting there drawing every single one of those frames by hand. Absolutely, yeah. How long did they take? That would... Uh, so an average seven-minute animation would take anything between three to six or seven months. Uh, they became highly industrialised and highly organised. Your top artists would only do the keyframes, the most important beginning and end of an action. And then you would have cheaper artists filling in the motion gaps in between, others to do the colours, others to do the lines, etc. What about the music that, that went with them? Because there was a whole industry around making it sound good as well, wasn't there? There was. Silly symphonies, merry melodies. The um, music was fantastic, but even more so was the sound effects, which by the time of, say, Snow White in 1938, 37, 38, were extraordinarily advanced and involved most incredible manic creativity in the sound studios. I'm just seeing in my mind, the, the and you can hear the sound if I just describe the scene of the person who goes over the cliff edge and there's nothing underneath them and their legs kind of grab at thin air and it goes for a while before they go downwards. Anyway, that's another story. What about the transition into digital animation, though? What, what actually has that done to the industry? Well, it's, it's given us a whole range of new toys. Perhaps the biggest thing is that um, all cinema animation is based on stop motion, but digital animation is based on creating genuinely three-dimensional objects in the computer which can move continuously. So although we record them onto uh, scanned screens, uh, which then introduce a stop motion effect like any kind of cinema reproduction or any television reproduction nonetheless the objects themselves are continuously moving in real time this has been insanely useful for two great things one is you can navigate anywhere within the imagined world and the other is that you can do this in real time nowadays which of course is the fundamental basis of the computer games industry which is perhaps the biggest consumer of animation nowadays well the consumer games industry actually turns over more than Hollywood, doesn't it? I mean, it's a hugely, highly grossing industry. Just to finish, where's this going next? What do you see in the future for animations? Well, the first thing to note is that the animation everywhere, uh, from radar screens to seismographs, scientists themselves are using um, animation as they have been as, as major pioneers right back to the Voyager 2 flyby videos from 1973. Uh, I think we're going to see a great deal more of motion capture. Well, one this is where you film somebody and then superimpose what they did onto a, an inanimate creation. Exactly, yeah, like Gollum, for example. Uh, we're going to get more augmented reality like Pokemon Go, but what I'm really looking forward to is really real three-dimensional objects that wander around in the world. Robots, 
are the future of animation. I'm looking forward to that very much. Sean Cubitt from Goldsmiths, University of London. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Mayim Bialik. I play Amy Farrah Fowler on The Big Bang Theory, and you are listening to The Naked Scientist Show on the Science of Animation. With me, Chris Smith, and with Georgia Mills. And we'll be hearing more from Mayim later about her experience as a voice actor, as well as learning about the neuroscience behind those skills. But first, key to any animation is the animator. But would you expect your animator to need a physics degree? Arguably, yes, because our brains are very sensitive to the way in which the world around us should work. So if there's something slightly off with the way an object falls or the way some water moves, it can trigger a kind of mental reality check and break the spell of the movie for the viewer. I caught up with physicist Professor Alejandro Garcia from the San Jose State University, who's been a consultant for DreamWorks in the past and is a strong believer that fictional films need to obey the laws of physics. In creating a film, the director has to think about what kind of world is being presented and and how things are in that world. And uh, usually the, the audience will have more connection with a world that feels real, that is, is believable. And uh, having uh, believable physics uh, goes a long way towards uh, creating a believable world that can serve for the suspension of disbelief uh, for the audience to to actually be engaged. So how would you go about creating these sort of realistic rules of physics? Well, animators, they start out by studying basic motion and recreating uh, basic motions. And they realize that in some cases in films, uh, the rules of physics will be broken. But for the most part, they want to follow the laws of physics and for, uh, say, effects animation like, like fire and smoke, they want to have those look believable as well. Is it just a case of sort of looking at this in the real world and copying it? Or do you have, like, I don't know, equations to make the perfect fire? Oh, there's there's definitely equations. And, and I should mention that all the studios have scientists that uh, design computer simulations, uh, fluids. And usually these are folks who are uh, classically trained with uh, PhDs in, in physics or mechanical engineering and, and so forth. And their simulations are similar to what is done in, in regular physics research. So it really is a case of sort of scientists at the drawing board, I guess. Yes. Now, there is one major difference in that the scientists that work in a studio, they have to be able to have a simulation which is uh, what they call art-directable. For example, they, they might do a simulation of smoke and show it to the director, and the director will say, well, I like that, but uh, I need the smoke to move this way, and I also need the smoke to look friendlier. I, the smoke <laughs> is looking too angry. I mean, seriously, this is exactly the, the kind of feedback they get. And, and so they have to go and adapt their their simulation to fit what the vision the director has for the, the story at that point. I, I suppose in a similar vein, you mentioned getting the physics right, but a lot of animations have quite zany, wacky things going on which completely defy the laws of things like gravity. How do you go about that? Often the, the laws of physics are broken as a way of uh, relieving tension because that removes often the, the danger that's possibly in a, in a scene. Whereas scenes that are more dramatic tend to have more realistic uh, physics. 
So adjusting the accuracy of the physics can be used as a plot device in a film. Uh, so could you perhaps give me an example of a film you've worked on and, and how you sort of worked on this process? Uh, yes, so this was um, Madagascar 3. In the film, there's a lot of uh, circus acts. So I worked with the animators in terms of doing uh, trapeze work, tightrope. You know, if you have a, a hippopotamus and a giraffe on a tightrope, how do you make them move so that it actually looks believable uh, when they're trying to maintain <laughs> their, their balance? I love that. You've got to make a giraffe and a hippo on a tightrope seem believable. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I, I think we were very successful in that. In terms of Madagascar 3, that's an example of a film that's sort of been, I guess, built up from from the ground up. But then, then there's these films that animation is sort of layered on to, to real life, like using things like motion capture. How does this differ from processes you mentioned? Motion capture is usually for films which are live action, and they are trying to take a character that is mostly human but is, is modified. So the, the limitation of motion capture is that you are always going to have a character which is moving like a, like a human. You can take that performance and the animators can uh, manipulate it, but you basically start from that uh, human performance. Uh, and, and one example is when you have a very large character, like in um, Jack and Giant Slayer. So the, the giants were all done with motion capture, but there was a minimal uh, manipulation of the timing of them. When you see them, sometimes they don't feel giant because they're moving exactly like uh, a regular size human. One thing which helps in that regard is actually slowing down the timing. That was used in the most recent Captain America a Civil War, where one of the characters is very large at one point in the movie, and they did motion capture for him, but then they uh, slowed the time down by, I think, about a factor of three, which then makes the character feel gigantic. And just finally, obviously crafting a story in a, in a good film is, is a very difficult thing, but just in terms of getting the physics right, what is the single hardest thing someone can ask you to do? The one thing which, which animators worry about all the time is getting a, a sense of weight for characters. This is a, an enormous challenge because every point in the motion you have to determine what kind of forces are acting and uh, also what kind of uh, reaction occurs when that character is interacting with another character. So the biggest challenge is, is multiple characters interacting with each other or with elements in the environment. So, so an animated battle sequence, for example, that would be a bit of a nightmare. Uh, exactly. That's, that's probably one of the most, most challenging sorts of uh, shots to do. Alejandro Garcia from San Jose State University in the US. Now, most animations don't rely just on their images. They're often brought to life by the actors who lend their voices to the characters. And one of them is neuroscientist Dr Mayim Bialik, who does the voiceovers for cartoons like Johnny Bravo. Her other main claim to fame is playing Amy Farrah Fowler in the television series The Big Bang Theory. Luchka Bibic spoke to her. I did a lot more voiceover work when I was younger. I actually used to um, play a boy's voice a lot. Even though I may not sound like a boy uh, right now, when I was younger, you know, I was definitely able to 
um, to sound more kind of like a, you know, a, a young boy, a 10 or 11 year old boy's voice. That was definitely something I was matched for. And when I would play girls, I would often be cast to play a bully, you know, cause I have kind of a rough voice. I have a scratchy voice. Um, and I would often do New York accents, you know, my, my parents are New Yorkers. So that accent comes very easy to me. And that's kind of a funny character, you know, to have a, a kid's villain who's got a heavy New York accent. It's kind of funny. Mm -hmm. And do you think that your body movement while you're doing voiceovers, uh, that that can kind of help you with the voice that you want to achieve? Um, absolutely. You know, again, it, it depends on what, what the character is doing. But a lot of times I do, you know, kind of get physical when I'm doing voiceover work. And you can absolutely tell when you're listening to a voiceover if someone um, has movement where appropriate or if, you know, even though you can't see a smile, for example, your voice definitely sounds different when you're smiling while saying something than when you're not. Mm -hmm. How is it possible to, for you to mimic different voices? I'm not a perfect mimic. You know, there's definitely kind of an innate ability that some people have. The actor on The Big Bang Theory, Simon Helberg, who plays Wallowitz, he has a remarkable ability to do identical mimicry of people's voices. Um, he's known for, he does an amazing Nicolas Cage impression, and it literally sounds like that person. So I don't have that kind of um, talent, like Simon does, for example. Um, but for people who can do that, it's it's definitely, there's there's some magic to it. As a neuroscientist, do you also think that, that the voice-overing is more science or an art? Um, well, I think that everything is science. So even art is science to me. Awesome. I'm the same. You know, I think that, I think when you see people who are really, really talented, um, you know, voiceover actors and can do a lot of different kinds of voices, there is something, there's something in, in that person's brain that is so special, you know, and for people who do mimicry really well and can imitate someone else's voice, um, you really get a feeling for that, that there's something in that person's brain that is much different, you know, than any other actor trying to do it. So, um, you know, I guess it's a, a healthy amount of both. May and Bialik, she was talking with Luchka Bibic. So what is the neuroscience of vocal imitation? Sophie Scott's a neuroscientist from University College London. Sophie, you brain scan people who do these kinds of things to work out what's going on in their heads. Yes, yes. I mean, entirely because I was interested. I wanted to know what they were doing. So I have done a handful of, of sort of individual cases of people who are voice artists to try and get to grips with what's happening when they change their voice. Because, of course, we have circuits in our brains that know the words we want to say. We have other circuits in our brains that control what the muscles of our faces do and our diaphragm and vocal cords do. But that's to make your own voice. So put me in, in the shoes of someone trying to change their voice. How do they do that? Well, two different things seem to happen. So if you take people who are not professionals, so people, you know, just me trying to impersonate my mum, for example, what you see, and we've actually done this as a proper study, is you can actually see in their brains, they're thinking about the sounds of that voice and they're trying to get there. They're using like an auditory target to try and change their voice. One of the things that is interesting about voice artists is they don't seem to do that. So a couple of people I've looked at, when they are changing their voice, what they do is they drive visual and sensory motor parts of the brain. So they seem to be thinking about what people, what people look like and how they move in order to change their voice. And that's something that you don't see in non-professionals. It seems to be a completely different approach to what somebody should sound like. Well, how does it change then when someone goes professional and becomes Rory Bremner, who can do anybody, as far as I can tell, what, what does he do differently? Well, do you know what? Hopefully one day when I've got more than a handful of people
scribble through the scanner, I'll be able to give you a better answer. But one of the things does seem to be a completely different approach to the voice. So people who are non-professionals, they're thinking about sound. The professionals seem to be approaching the voice almost like a like a whole body phenomenon. They're thinking about everything that somebody does. They'll talk about what people's eyebrows are doing and how their hands are moving, things that do not affect what you sound like directly. The other thing that anecdotally I have noticed in the voice artists I've worked with, the impressionists I've worked with, is that they very frequently are intensely musical. So perhaps they are simply approaching the voice as a musician might, their instrument, rather than somebody thinking about speech and what speech should sound like. And I think that's what everybody else is doing. Now, when you say the real pros, they adopt the other mannerisms of the person they're seeking to imitate. Do you get an effect then where your eyes read onto your brain what you want to see and therefore you create the sounds in your head because you see them behaving like that so you almost hear the real person? And so you're fooled into thinking they sound more like the person than they really do. Well, you definitely see that. I mean, if you look, there's lots of YouTube videos of people doing amazing impressions, and very often they really help that by having labels that appear. <laughs> so they think, well, that's, that's, that's true. slightly yeah. guiding us, you know. Um, but I think there's, I think it's, it's even more basic to that because I've noticed people will do that even if they're doing a radio recording. So they're doing something for which they will be recognised only by their voice, but they're still moving their body differently. They're moving their face differently to get to that impression. So I think it is a very, just a very basically different way of approaching altogether how you sound. And thinking about the, the neuroscience and the anatomical nuts and bolts of how we do this, how does your, your voice actually work and enable you to produce all this different range of sounds and, and try to sound like somebody else? Well, we don't often think about it this way, but actually the voice is an unbelievably complex musical instrument and it's operating really unlike pretty much anything else that you can find in nature, with the exception of some songbirds. So we've got the larynx, which is your voice box, and that's where you're making a sound. So if you put your finger on your throat and go, uh, you can feel a vibration and that's the source of most of our speech and, and sort of uses of our voice. And then you shape that with your articulators, which are your lips, your tongue, your, your soft palate at the, sort of at the back of your throat and your jaw and you're it's as if you're playing a musical instrument where you are continuously changing the timbre by how you're moving the articulators out that's the kind of that's the, the sort of template for how we talk but then within that it's still unbelievably flexible so you can do all sorts of different things with your larynx you can really vary the pitch of your voice you can vary how you vibrate your vocal fold so i'm talking right now with what's called a modal voice but i could also talk with a breathier voice which isn't actually entirely coming in like the woman off MasterChef. Yes, yes. Or I could speak with a creakier voice and creaky voice. Um, that's really valenced. Some people really, really hate it. And actually, in the UK, it's rather a posh way of speaking. Lots of lots of posh people have got very creaky voices. So it's all, all that's kind of coming in from you know changes right down in your larynx. And then you know you've got all these different things that are happening up at the in the articulator. So some people, my old boss in Cambridge had an extremely nasal voice. He's just using his soft palate differently. I have another colleague who has. A quite a different tension in her jaw when she's talking and that's all the little ticks and stuff that's going in there that's kind of cueing you into who it is that you're talking to and one of the things that impressionists do is kind of pull all of that together and start to almost put it into a caricature but I think the, the basic thing to bear in mind is just how flexible it is to start with. Well that was a hard act to imitate wasn't it? Thank you very much Sophie Scott from University College London and before her Mayim Bialik from The Big Bang Theory. Thank you to our other contributors as well this week, Sean Cubitt and Anna Abraham.
And now to finish, it's time for question of the week. And Claire Armstrong has been learning about unlearning. The Naked Scientist's question of the week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. Is it possible to unlearn what we have already learned? Interesting question, Robert. To get to the bottom of it, I recruited Cambridge University neuroscientist Laura Ford. So to start to answer this question, it's important to think about what learning is at the neuronal level. So we have two nerve cells that um, are talking to each other, really. There's a message that's sent from one cell and it's received to the other neuron. And this is a reinforced connection because we use it very often and, and we're learning and recalling information. So what we need to do is try and encourage that neuron to talk to another neuron. And that's the process of unlearning. So by changing which neurons talk to one another, it is possible to unlearn something. Absolutely. It is is essential that we are able to unlearn things. So if we think of an example, um, we have a baby crying and um, we want to comfort that baby in the middle of the night to allow them to go back to sleep. And so baby will learn, it will associate that when cries, then it will have a cuddle. So for the sake of our sanity, we obviously want the child to unlearn this behaviour. So we'll do, uh, we'll undertake a process which is called extinction, which is this idea of just, just slowly creeping away and letting the child know that you're there, but allowing them to, to learn how to self-soothe. So what exactly is going on in baby's brain when this is happening? Neurons, they form networks. They, they, they talk to each other. The more they talk to each other, the better friends they become, and put it this way. It becomes almost hardwired in the system when we learn something. And this happens very heavily throughout the process of when we're, we're growing up and we're learning and acquiring new information and, and incorporating it in our networks. But we can, with a lot of encouragement, persuade that neuron to talk to a different neuron and make friends with them instead. And uh, this is a process of, of unlearning. And, and the way that uh, you're, you're doing that is um, it's a lot more effortful in the first instance, but then that itself can also become habitual. So it's this idea of, of just asking your networks to be recruited in a different way and neurons to speak to a different one than those that they might be used to. And, and that may be harder than acquiring information just when you're learning off pat, but it certainly can be done. And in some cases, is essential. Thanks, Laura. I'll bear that in mind next time I notice a bad habit. I guess this means there's hope that one day I can shake them off. Next time on Question of the Week, we'll be squeezing out the answer to this question. Why does line drying make clothes rough? Do you have an answer to this clothy question that was sent in by Kevin? If so, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientist.com slash forum. And that is all we have time for. Thank you very much to Luchka Bibic, who put the show together. And do be sure to join us at the same time next week when we'll be having a special birthday celebration of the programme and also discovering in the process how science makes its way from the laboratory bench and then into newspapers, radio programmes and even podcasts like our one. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the EPSRC, the STFC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and from all of us, until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. 
The Nation, where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.